Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Primate Cast. I'm your host, Andrew McIntosh, and the release date for today's podcast is Saturday, October the 18th, 2014. And today on the podcast, we're doing something a little bit different. So I have with me in the studio, Cecile Sarabian, as we mentioned last week. Hello. Welcome to the Primate Cast again. Thank you. And so what we're doing today is I have given creative license to Cecile to put together a podcast from her recent trip to the Student, co- uh, student Conference in Conservation Science, which was held in Bangalore. Um, yes, so recently I just came back from, from Bangalore, where I attended the Student Conference on Conservation Science, which was held at the Indian Institute of Science between the 25th and the 28th of September. So I went there because beside the primate guest, I also had a a project that I wanted to present. I was participating in the Who is Who in Conservation? And I went to present a poster on uh, Roots and Shoots Iran. Um, so Roots and Shoots program, Roots and Shoots first is, um, is an education uh, program that was uh, created by Dr. Jane Goodall in 1991 in Tanzania with a group of uh, students. And the goal of Roots and Shoots is um, for the young people to identify the problem in their community and to try to work on it. And then they create their own small projects to make uh, their place a better place in terms of, it can be conservation, it can be humanitarian projects, environmental issues, yeah, and etc. So um, in Iran, I, so I'm half Iranian, half French, and uh, I know that um, the environmental awareness there is not that great. Um, and I, I felt at some point that I, I wanted to do something in, in this field. And I knew about Roots and Shoots, I knew about Dr. Jane Goodall. I also knew that she was going to visit our institutes. It was one and a half year ago. It was the time that we had the interview with Jane, actually, at yeah, the right. Primate Cast, yeah. that we number eight. Yeah. And so she, she came here, had PRI, but I was in my field site. So I wrote her a letter about uh, my idea to develop roots and shoots in Iran. And eventually she replied uh, after she left Japan from South Korea, I think. And she, she sent me back a letter saying that, yeah, it would be fantastic. So when you receive such letter from, <laughs> from Dr. Goodall, then you just feel, okay, now I have to take action. And I was uh, already in touch with a group of environmental activists and friends from Mashhad, northeast of the country in Iran. And um, together, so I went there like a few months after this letter and, uh, and we, we gathered together, we organized a meeting and, and set up the, the goals we wanted to, to act on it. And yeah. So if I remember correctly, one of the first activities that you guys put together was a translation uh, oh, yeah, Farsi right. of one right. of Jane Goodall's documentaries. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, that was one of the. We were thinking that to introduce the program, we needed first an introduction of uh, Jane Goodall, so we translated into Farsi um, Jane's journey, which uh, yeah was a, a famous uh, documentary, introducing roots and shoots, released in two thousand ten. Yeah. Yeah, and so you're 
at uh, this conference in Bangalore, you were representing Roots and Shoots Iran, but so it's not just you, there's a no, team now. No, there is a team on the ground. As I say, um, I'm the spokesperson, but I am, because I'm not living in Iran right now, I'm, I'm not the one who who does uh, a lot of great job. So there is there is a team there. Um, it's many, managed by uh, Mohamed Raimpana, who is the, the manager of the project, and um, Dr. Vahabzadeh, who is now a, a renowned and retired ecologist, um, and he is also uh, very involved in the, in the project. And our our project now is um, kind of taking a turn. So we because they think that what is important, the most important, if you want to educate the people about environmental issues, and is education, and they want. Um, they want this program to be uh, kind of different of what we can see now, um, built on the children and nature relation. The f- we think that it's it's actually the most important. And you even have some publications saying that at your early age, it's very important to build this relation. And if you don't have this relation, then um, it will it will affect your relation to nature in the future. And Mashhad is the second biggest city in Iran, so it's very important for the kids there. So they started by bringing uh, groups of kids into the surrounding of Mashhad in the mountain and just interacting in the in the nature with the nature. And and now they have this project of the school of uh, nature, the Mashhad School of Nature. And it's basically a, a, a farm where there are um, lots of vegetables and animals. And uh, on a daily basis, weekly basis, children can come in the farm and just interact w- w- with the nature. Um, the idea is to let them free, have their own experience with nature. That's a, that's a new kind of um, new concept, at least for Iran. Mm-hmm. And so how was the poster received at the at the conference? I mean, did you get to talk to a lot of people about what's going on in Iran and how do people react to that from India? Yeah, yeah, it was great. There were a uh, lot of people coming coming to me and, and the poster. I got a lot of contacts, even people in India or around the world involved in kind of similar projects, but with a different approach. So it was great exchanging with them. Were there any other recent soup, uh, shoots groups at the no, conference? No. Okay. And were there any other Iranian delegates there? No. Okay, so you're really representing. <laughs> kind of, yeah. <laughs> okay, so, so tell us about the, the podcasting experience there. So again, it wasn't just you, you had a big No, so I had a, a fantastic team of uh, podcast volunteers with me. Uh, so I had with me uh, Dina Raskina, who is a junior research fellow at the National Center for Biological Science in Bangalore. Um, Pankash... Kopalde, who is a program fellow um, working with Salim Ali Center for Ornithology and Natural History. And Djurgesh Singh, who is a research in- intern at Ashoka Trust for Research in Ecology and the Environment in Bangalore. And finally, Ananya, who is a PhD student in, at uh, the Indian Institute of Science in Bangalore as well. Yeah, and I, I also have to, to thank the, the all uh, volunteer team from SCCS Bangalore because yeah, the, 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 the podcast material was actually stuck in the customs. And I think without <laughs> them, we wouldn't have been able to conduct uh, the interviews at all. They were extremely helpful, extremely yeah. helpful. So, so I also thank uh, all of them for supporting you while you were in Bangalore. 
And so joining us in the studio in just a moment here uh, is one of the organizers uh, for SCCS Bangalore. Yes, Robin Vijayan, who is a research fellow at the National Center for Biological Science in Bangalore, India. And he will tell us what, when, and how SCCS Bangalore uh, started. Yeah, and so just for the listeners out there, um, when we finish this interview with with Robin, uh, I'm just going to take a back seat and leave the rest of the programming to Cecile. So I hope everyone enjoys. Okay, so in the studio here, we have over Google Hangouts, uh, Robin joining us, one of the organizers of the SCCS. So Robin, can you just first start by telling us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you are, what you do, and how you got involved in the SCCS? Yeah, so um, I I study ecology and evolution of birds on mountaintops on sky islands uh, in India, and uh, so um, so as part of my research, I, I work with uh, I collaborate with quite a few other people, and uh, the SCCS came in about in 2010 to India, and it was already quite popular uh, with students when it was running in Cambridge uh, even before. So when it came here, I, I got a chance to get involved as a volunteer, like uh, Cecil, Cecil was uh, at, at this conference uh, in Bangalore. And um, uh, then later, two years later, some, uh, some folks asked me if I'd like to help out and uh, step into the uh, organizing committee. And that seemed great. That seemed like a great idea. So I was there. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So can you describe a bit more uh, what is uh, SCCS actually? Yeah, sure. So uh, SCCS started out in Cambridge, I think about 15 years back. And uh, uh, their, uh, the, their agenda was to kind of get uh, people, students working on conservation from different parts of the world over there. And uh, some, of, some of the faculty who were in Bangalore happened to go to these conferences. Uh, like Dr. Sukumar and Suhail and some others. Mm -hmm. And they found that uh, this had great value and a lot of Indian students were turning up there. And from there kind of originated this idea of starting a sister conference uh, in Bangalore. And in 2010, uh, they came here. And uh, in India, actually, we were a little bit uh, surprised about how, how things took off because uh, people really, uh, students really uh, took to it uh, quite well. Um, so, uh, yeah, so essentially it's, uh, it's largely for students and it's primarily uh, capacity building. So students share their research. Uh, but in India, there's a big focus on workshops. Uh, that's just because how uh, the Indian setup is. Uh, mm -hmm. We don't have many academic conferences running in India. So uh, students flock to it, uh, to this only annual event. And um, uh, and uh, also the the because the university and undergraduate education uh, doesn't seem to have too many uh, new tools that they teach in mm -hmm. methods of you know doing science. Mm -hmm. uh, so they they are very excited about all these young faculty in Bangalore offering all these uh, really interesting cool workshops. So that's another thing that is a major uh, attraction for students of uh, SCCS in Bangalore. So one of the one of the actually um, uh, it's it's partly by accident and partly by intent. Uh, the way SCCS has been set up in India uh, is that uh, it's it's run by uh, a conglomerate of institutions. It's uh, there are many different institutions that actually run the conference. So it's not run by any one institution. Uh, 
so as a consequence of this, we have a diversity of um, uh, you know professors and resource people who are uh, who are willing to offer workshops uh, because there many institutions are involved. And also as a result of this, there are volunteers from different institutions. There are a lot of students uh, who want to participate in this. And the volunteers really are the life of the of the conference. Yes. They run everything. Yeah. And yeah, that's our highlight, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so can I just back up for a second here? Um, can you give us an impression yeah, of, sure. of, of what the current state of, uh, of conservation and conservation activities is in India? I know um, you mentioned uh, Dr. Skumar there a minute ago, and we had him actually on the podcast yeah. a few episodes ago. When, That's right. when he came through Japan yes, and yes. he told us all about the, uh, you know, the human elephant conflicts and this being a really big issue. But can you give us maybe more broadly an idea of what the situation is? Um, yeah, that's a bit more challenging, but <laughs> I'll, I'll give it a shot. So um, uh, in general, I think there's a big uh, move for conservation in India. So there, there, there is a wider uh, engagement about conservation that's happening in the of Maine, uh, because there are all, all kinds of events. I mean, some of them are negative, some of them are positive, uh, that are kind of highlighting this. Uh, so there are issues like man-animal conflict with large mammals, like Dr. Sukumar spoke about at your uh, podcast. Uh, and uh, uh, there are also leopards and tigers living in very close proximity uh, with humans. And that is a big problem in India. And, and people, uh, initially thought that there was the only simple way to do that was to keep the people out and uh, the people and animals separate. And increasingly, uh, people are just beginning to realize that that's really not possible given the high density of people that we have in India. So SCCS Bangalore is usually for conservationists or students interested in conservation from Asia and Africa. And you mentioned in at the end of the conference that the future goals would be to also get more people from Africa because you have mainly students coming over, well, lots of Indians and lots of uh, students from Asia, but you still need to have more people from the yes. other continent. Yeah. Yes. So um, one of the reasons, and we keep getting this feedback. So every year we have about five or six African students. I think this year we had a, a little bit less, uh, but uh, every year we get feedback from other students saying that they are surprised that some of the conservation challenges that we face are so similar in Africa. Uh, so uh, a lot of the systems that they have and we have seem to be very similar. So it seems like a natural, um, uh, you know, a natural place to kind of share, uh, uh, natural region to share information with. Uh, so we would definitely, we would want more students to come from there and more resource people, uh, uh, you know, uh, we, we just have to think about new ways to, um, uh, you know, put people together. Mm -hmm. yes. it, it really seems like like a great effort. I was talking with Cecile earlier um, before this year, we didn't even know that these SCCS conferences uh, existed. And so when I happened to stumble across, actually, I stumbled across the one in Cambridge, um, I was quite impressed. And I thought, wow, what a great idea and opportunity for students. Um, so I think obviously part of this is, is just continuing to spread the word. Uh, so hopefully doing things like this can help in a small way. Yeah, I just wanted to say that, you know, one of the, uh, uh, when you guys um, uh, wrote to us, I mean, it was like, uh, you know, it was a eureka moment because uh, it was like, why didn't we think of this? This is perfect because it's 
there are so many students in india who are not still who are not able to come to the conference but they would really like to hear more about uh, what happens behind the research and what what you know uh, what are the people like all these people who come and give these great talks uh, what do they go through you know a little bit more about them and uh, so uh, yeah so y- your podcast series is fantastic and uh, i should really thank you guys for coming over and you know kind of opening our eyes uh, to this uh, sphere and we really want to start this uh, as a regular feature at SCCS. Well that would be fantastic and you know if we could feel even tiny bit responsible for that I'll carry that with pride uh, for as long as I'm around. <laughs> but uh, but you yes. know when when and we I, first did uh, I would be glad to go there every year. Yeah right okay. <laughs> you heard it here. So um I did want to thank you uh, very much sincerely because when we did contact you and the the welcome we received was so warm and and uh, you definitely helped Cecile a lot uh, during her time there so so great great amount of thanks here from the Primate Cast. Thank thank you guys for everything as well. Okay well well thanks for joining us on the Primate Cast Robin. Okay yeah bye. Now let's go back to Bangalore and start with one of the most renowned conservationists in India working on human-elephant conflict, Mr. Ananda Kumar, who was invited as a plenary speaker of SCCS Bangalore 2014, and Durgesh had the opportunity to interview him. Tell us about yourself and give us a bit of background that what you have been working with. Um, I am with the Nature Conservation Foundation, which is uh, basically the based in Mysore. Um, I work in Western Ghats region in the Anamala Hills. So I have been studying elephants for the past 12 years uh, with a group of uh, uh, conservation scientists in the Anamala Hills. Uh, from today's talk, I have come to know that you have been working with the human-elephant conflict. I just want to know that how you entered into this field. I've been in this uh, animalize for the past 20 years. So working on different uh, species like primates, so lantern macaques, bonnet macaques, nilgir langur and hanman langurs. So that was the time that uh, when we were actually working, me and my colleagues Devya Mudapa and Shankaraman. So we were asked by the companies they, that they are facing a little bit of trouble with the elephants thing and they wanted us to start work. So that's how we actually began Animal Elephant Program. So it was basically company interest, not your own interest. <laughs> uh, it was partially our interest as well, but the need of the hour was such that, uh, you know, we really need to channelize our research efforts uh, to understand elephants and people in this. So can you highlight that what you are doing in this field and how you are conducting your work? Basically what we are trying is that uh, we have been trying to understand elephants and people and their relationships. And uh, so based on uh, rigorous scientific research and application of that research in addressing the issue of human-elephant conflict. Would you like to try to highlight some elephant behavior? Uh, here, so that uh, how did you study the animal behavior uh, during your this research work? That would be more interesting. Say here, uh, elephants have to f- face people. So if you look at the elephant, if it has to walk for about a kilometer, so it has to go through some colony or manager's bungalow or a factory. So it is inevitable for elephants, you know, to interact with 
some human structures or to interact with people so that's uh, thing that's the situation and uh, see actually the elephants really tolerate people and people also tolerate elephants so what is lacking here is that uh, when there is a surprise encounter that will lead to you know unwanted uh, results so this is what we are actually looking at so we investigated so how these surprise encounters are actually happening how the incidents are actually happening so where are the damages are happening so that's how we figured it out that there are certain locations you know like buildings which store food grains like rice dal lentils salt sugar which were damaged by elephants and they also damaged school noon mill centers so which store food grains for school children as a part of mid day mill scheme government of india scheme so when these structures are very close to residential places even residential places will also get hit which is a traumatic thing so we identified uh, hot spots within this plantation landscape and uh, so we conveyed that information to plantation companies that you know to shift to have a better storage facilities or to have mobile ration system so some companies have actually adopted this so that's why at those areas actually there has been no conflict for the past several years so it's just like that instead of having 10 ration shops in a in a small place have one ration shop and better protection to that place and also that people also distribute ration once in a week in a particular estate so that it will not be stored for long time so when elephants visit these places they can see that the building is empty and uh, they will move away because it's it's just only you know, it's a uh, it's a investment actually for an elephant from the elephant's perspective that they have to invest so much to break certain things so why should they take that kind of risk because they also need to face people as well so that's the thing so some of these measures which are taken and uh, even the forest department which is extremely good in in our area the field staff will be there right uh, at the place where the elephants are going to be there. so like ration shops or critical colonies so they are giving enough protection they are not chasing right outrightly but they are actually avoiding elephants entering in colonies but what happens is in spite of all this so still there are some damages that that will happen so anyway that damages cannot be brought down to zero but it can be minimized substantially so that's the point which i want to get across to people and second thing is that loss of life occurred in surprise encounters without knowing that there were elephants so it was basically the lack of information about elephants thing what happened what we did was that with the help of companies forest department local people we have developed elephant information network in which we conveyed information about elephant presence elephant locations to people through television sms and uh, alert indicators so that it has actually resulted in reducing number of incidents yeah it's a pretty a good walk and uh, i just want to know like what um, you have plans for future in this field especially with the human elephant conflict have you been thinking more to extend your further research or further uh, walk we have uh, recently initiated work in forest farm landscape which is which is hard edge boundary between a forest and agricultural landscape because it's much more challenging because there is a crop damage there 
and uh, loss of life is also being monitored in Coimbatore Forest Division as well as in Satyamangala Forest Divisions. So we are trying to understand the basic things about the conflict thing to look at elephants and people and hopefully that will come out the data would say some um, highlight some certain key things so that based on that we will take steps further. Before we finish, I uh, just uh, want to ask you one last question. What the main challenge you found while working with this elephant, you know, the huge animal? So, what were the challenges, the main one, important one? Challenge is that uh, human-elephant relationships are always dynamic in nature. So, one said that one has to really look at the requirements of elephants in terms of their ecology, in terms of their behavior. At the same time that we also need to think about people because the thing is these are the people who face elephants every day. So managing this, balancing, striking balance between people and elephant situations is the most challenging one. Did you not encounter some accident with elephants while walking with them from close, very close distance? Yeah, it happened several times and uh, one of the things that uh, we didn't know that there was an elephant thing and uh, we went very close to elephant but of course elephants did not charge at us but the mere presence of seeing an elephant in a very very close quarters can actually you know sense waves in your body so the thing is it's really traumatic so one of the things that when i was observing elephants and recording their behaviors my assistant you know slept so when I asked him to look after the elephants there, when I am concentrating on one particular individual for my behavioral study, and he got bored and slept at the tea bush. So after some time that I felt that somebody is actually watching me, so when I turned my head and I saw a tusker which was just 20 feet away. So I didn't know what to do. So and uh, whether I should get up and run or I should yell out for my assistant or I should make some noise and, but I just kept quiet but the Tusker just looked and stayed at me for about a minute and went back so that's so gentle uh, anything uh, you wanna tell to the young uh, researcher like uh, what we can do more in this field especially with the human settlement and the elephant uh, conflict where we can put some new research, you have some idea for the young researcher? So one common thing that should be noticed and that should be followed is that if we are serious about striking a balance between people and the elephants, when we are intending to work in human dominated landscapes which are modified elephant habitats, we really need to understand the problem. Please don't jump at the conclusions. Please don't jump at the mitigation measures in the first phase. So one has to understand people and elephants. Then only what data says, a scientific investigation says, one has to apply that. Look at the possibility of coming up with locally appropriate, adaptive, feasible, participative, mitigation measures. So that would actually help people and elephants. More research. It's also what our next speaker told me about the future needs of conservation during this conference. 
So let's jump from human elephant conflicts in the Western Ghats to Snow Leopard Conservancy in Ladakh. Hi Radhika, so welcome to the Primate Guests. Can you introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, thank you for inviting me. Uh, so I'm Radhika Kothari. I've just completed my master's in uh, conservation leadership from the University of Cambridge. Uh, prior to that, I was the director of uh, Snow Leopard Conservancy India. I left that work last year. And uh, yeah, I am originally from Bombay and been working in the mountains for about six to seven years now, the Indian Himalayas basically. Okay, so how did you hear about uh, SCCS Bangalore? Right. Well, SCCS is a very popular conference among students in India. And I had actually completed one, I had received, my colleague and I had received a Snow Leopard grant last year from the Snow Leopard Network. And we were doing some work, I thought I'll uh, uh, submit an abstract here for one of the student talks. And it got selected, and that's what got me here. So, what what is the Snow Leopard Conservancy about, and what did you do for the project? Right. Well, the Snow Leopard Conservancy is a local NGO based in Ladakh. That's in North India. It's been working there for snow leopard conservation with the local communities for over 10 years now. And uh, I joined the organization in 2010. Uh, I was involved uh, as um, the head of the organization. I was involved in a lot of activities of the organization itself, a lot of projects. But this particular grant was in the name of Jigmet Dadul, my colleague, and me. And the idea was to just understand the presence and status of snow leopards outside the national park, outside the Hemis National Park, which is in Ladakh. We do know and we've been working outside the national park with the communities a lot, but we never knew what the status of snow leopards were. So this was the first step towards that. How did you do that? Um, you, were, you, you were also working with scientists, um, I guess, in the field? Or? Yeah. Well, to be honest, we did not have any uh, biologists per se, okay. but we had Jigmit who has been working for snow leopard conservation for over 15 years. Uh, with his experience and my uh, passion to do something in that place, we sort of combined the skills and then put a project together which got approved. Uh, so the idea was obviously uh, publish an estimation uh, in the wrong valley of Ladakh, which is eastern Ladakh, and also get an understanding of the movement of snow leopards in terms of the human uh, settlements there. And we also tried to do community perceptions on uh, what they think about snow leopards, what has been the depredation in the last one year or so, and also just get a sense of their attitude towards snow leopards and wildlife in general. In that so could you manage to answer some of these questions? Well, uh, it was a bit difficult, but we have, we have a very good local team there. So we actually developed the questionnaires in the local language particularly and made sure that we all were on the same page and on how we want to ask the questions, where we are leading and everything. The community, since we've been working in Ladakh for such a long time, the community has been very responsive to us. And it was just like over a, over a, you know, a cup of coffee, uh, sorry, a cup of tea there. Uh, you just sort of just talk to them generally and ask them questions. And they're always very open to ask, uh, answering us, which was the good part. I, I don't think this such work is possible without the people who live there. How do you see the future of Snow Leopard Conservancy in, in Ladakh? Well, it's got a very bright future. <laughs> but uh, since we are trying to strengthen our scientific projects, we hope to ensure that you know people know about not just the organization, but the importance of snow leopards outside the national park. Hopefully, since now I am uh, off my responsibilities of SLC and I've just completed my academics, I'm hoping to ensure that we uh, write the papers, get the data published. Uh, I've met a lot of people who want this data here. 
and it's very important now on my bid to ensure that this data is out and it's freely available for the world to see and ensure that they are able to extrapolate this into uh, the larger programs for snow leopards across the world or in Central Asia or South Asia. I think it's we owe it to ourselves to do that now. Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah. And what are your personal perspectives? Uh, well, right now I just got back to India a couple of weeks back. Okay. I am exploring my options, but I am deeply in love with the Himalayas. So I am trying to explore some options there and continue working for the mountains. I am. Uh, I, I do feel and know. Uh, that climate change is such an important issue in the mountains, especially with the recent flooding events and such catastrophes happening there since a couple of years. We hope we are able to do something for them, for the people and the landscapes in the coming years. And I hope to contribute in that uh, sector as well. Right, yeah. fantastic. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Julie. <laughs> so for those who don't know, Julie in Ladakhi language means hello, goodbye, thank you. And Ladakh is a region between Pakistan and Tibet in northwest India, in the western Himalayan range, basically. I can tell you that because I was there just before the conference. I was traveling there. And that was absolutely fantastic. The people, the culture, the traditions. Even though I didn't see any snow leopards while trekking there, I uh, heard about Snow Leopard Conservancy already. And by the time I couldn't make it, I couldn't visit the center. So I'm glad that I had the opportunity to talk uh, with Radhika during the conference. Now, our next speaker will bring us away from the Himalayas, but will carry us on wildlife conservation issues in Africa. During SCCS 2014, I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Gladys Kalemazikuzaka from Uganda, a plenary speaker of the conference. Hello, I'm uh, Dr. Gladys Kalemazikuzaka founder and chief executive officer of a grassroots NGO called Conservation Through Public Health. I'm here in Bangalore because I was invited by somebody called Dr. Madhu, who works with the Nature Conservation Foundation. I met him in England when we both got an award from the Whitley Fund for Nature, which supports outlining leadership in grassroots nature conservation. Uh, we met five years ago. And the reason why we got, I got the award from the Whitley Fund for Nature is for our work in Uganda. I started out with a great interest in gorillas. I set up a wildlife club in the school that I was at, which made me want to work with wildlife. And shortly after that, I was introduced to the mountain gorillas in Uganda and the chimpanzees. And I eventually did my studies as a vet student in England on chimps, wild chimpanzees in Budongo Forest and then a couple of years later I did a study, a similar study, looking at parasites in the dung in wild gorillas in Bwindi, the mountain gorillas and especially my experience in Bwindi introduced me to issues of conservation and the role that tourism plays, can play in conservation and the role that research can play in conservation and this led me to getting my first job as the vet for Uganda Wildlife Authority. And not only was it my first job, but I was also setting up a veterinary department from scratch. And I did that for four and a half years. It was very interesting. But the main reason why they felt they needed a vet was because mountain gorilla tourism had just begun. And they were concerned that the people who were coming to visit the gorillas could actually make them sick. And they needed a vet to make sure that the gorillas were not getting diseases from the tourists. 
and so that position was created and I took up that post. It was a very interesting job because I also ended up looking after other wildlife in the country and that's kind of how I got into conservation. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you created this conservation through public health, right? Yes, um, I did. So can you tell us a bit more about this uh, big project? Yes. One of my first cases as the vet for Uganda Wildlife Authority was there was a skin disease outbreak in one of the tourist gorilla groups. And when I got the message that the gorillas were losing hair and developing white scaly skin, I asked my counterparts in Rwanda, where they had a project going on, Martin Gorilla Vet Project, and they had never seen anything like that before. And then I also spoke to a human doctor friend of mine who told me that one of the most common diseases, skin diseases in Uganda is scabies, which is a coptic mange due to poor hygiene. And so when we went up to deal with the case, we went up with, it's a 10 hour drive from Kampala where I was sitting at the National Park headquarters. We went up with what we thought we could use to treat the gorillas if they had scabies. And when we got there, we did find that they did have scabies. Um, the infant gorilla had lost almost all its hair and was crying, which is very unusual for gorillas. And the rest of the group was scratching, especially the younger ones, and losing hair. And so we treated the rest of the group and the mother dropped the baby, which died a few days later. And we were able to do a fresh post-mortem and found very many mites, which were causing loss of hair and eventually pneumonia. And so a few years later, we started to ask ourselves, where could the scabies have come from? Mm -hmm. Because it happened in that group and later it happened in another group. Yeah. And we realized that the people around were very unhygienic. Uh, they had less than adequate hygiene. And, you know, they were defecating in the garden, not covering their rubbish heaps. And they were putting out scarecrows to scare away wildlife. But they put, of course, the dirtiest piece of clothing. They don't really have easy access to water, um, which they have to carry from the river at the bottom of the valley. And so they were not bathing a lot. They were not washing their clothes often. And all of that was leading to poor hygiene and diseases like scabies. Mm -hmm. So I was asked as an only vet in the organization to lead a health education campaign on risks of human and gorilla disease transmission, which I went ahead to do. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. But it was also a turning point in my life because after we presented all the information to the communities, together with the district health people and uh, community conservation rangers and wardens, they, we asked them what they thought about it. And they came up with very good suggestions. Um, they all wanted access to health services. They wanted access to safe water. And uh, they wanted to continue to improve their hygiene. So they were very aware that their hygiene wasn't good and they wanted to improve on that. And then they also wanted to strengthen the human and gorilla conflict team which chases gorillas out of the park, I mean, out of the community garden. So out of all that, um, and plus research which I did on tuberculosis mm -hmm. at the Human Wildlife Livestock Interface as part of my master's in North Carolina, where we looked at TB in people going close to gorillas, which is the park staff and the community members who, where the gorillas are always going out. So what, what did you find? Um, we found that 25% of people yeah. who had chronic coughs had tuberculosis. And it was very interesting because 
we would get to a community and the district health person, the same person we had worked with a couple of years ago with the health education programs, would say to me, um, don't worry, when we get to the community, we'll find people who are sick. Because the health services are so limited, people don't report themselves to the health center. You have to go and look for them. So we get, we get to a community and ask who is coughing, who's been coughing for a long time, and they would point to different people, and we'd get to them and talk to them and interview them and take their samples. And then we found that 25% of these people had tuberculosis. And yet the gorillas were visiting them regularly. And so that was a very big eye-opener for me. We did it in another national park, which has savanna species, um, where it has buffalo, cattle, and people. And we're trying to see how TB is spreading between, from the buffalo to the cattle to the people, or vice versa. And there they had a system called community-based direct observation of treatment, where your next-door neighbor watches you taking treatment every day for eight months. In Burundi, they didn't have that system. So two people died during my study. And uh, that made me realize that actually we needed to bring such kind of health services to the community. Because of some technical problem, the first part of the interview with Gladys was interrupted. So to catch up with what she said in between, actually I asked her what was the impact of conservation through public health on both the gorillas and the people. During her talk, she already mentioned that the impact on, of the program on gorillas was to decrease the disease rate. And now she's going to tell us what was the impact on the local people. Um, the impact on the people has been, I did mention the fact that they're more positive about conservation, but as far as the health impacts go, the family planning has drastically increased. Um, it's much higher than the national average now. It's about 60%, whereas the national average is 28%. And we started out when it was less than the national average. The hygiene and sanitation has increased a lot. Adoption of hand washing facilities outside the toilet and things like that, drying racks, clean water storage containers has really increased over 50%. Um, we've had a very big increase, 11 times, of people being referred for tuberculosis and other diseases. And men are more involved in family planning, which in the public health sector is very important because they found that when they're not involved, it's not really sustainable. And because when, also when they get involved in family planning, then they can talk about, to their wives about many other things. So in the end, actually, it helps with the whole gender issues in the household. So yeah, so we are happy about that impact. And um, uh, you said during your talk that the, the average um, kids per family in Brindy is even higher than in Uganda. It it's is about 10, 10, 10 children per family. Per family. Exactly. So, um, yeah, it's really shocking. 10 children per family when we did the survey. And this is that's just the ones who've lived live births, yeah. not the ones who, if you count those, then it would be even higher. And the average family size in Uganda is seven, which is still higher than the rest of the world. So there is a lot of work to do there. But what we're finding is that women will tell you that the volunteers who we work with, the village health and conservation teams, will tell you that women are not having babies every year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, now they're waiting and they're doing other things with their lives. So I think it's empowered the women yeah. much more. Something which we were not aiming to do, yeah. but has ended up being a result a good benefit of the program, yeah. a good side effect. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Mm -hmm. So congratulations. So what, what are the Thank next steps of, of um, conservation through public health? The what? next steps of conservation through public health is to scale up the approach 
to other parts of the forest mm -hmm. and we started doing it in another two high human and gorilla conflict parishes and then with some funding to it's primarily to scale up the whole the most, the most basic elements of the approach which is making sure that we have village health and conservation teams who visit homes regularly and improve their conservation attitudes and public health practices and then at the same time we are also you know continuing with the disease monitoring and other aspects of conservation and then we also want to scale up to other protected areas in Virunga National Park where there are also mountain gorillas and other types of gorillas in Mount Shabirum we are working with the Congolese wildlife authorities and NGOs to scale it up in that area and then we also want to scale it up in savannah protected areas um, within Uganda, the Uganda Wildlife Authority wants us to do that and we've started that um, in two savannah protected areas, Queen Elizabeth National Park and Pianupe Wildlife Reserve and then through East African regional networks um, some groups are adopting their approach in Kenya and we want to work around Mount Elgon with the, the government bodies like Lake Victoria Basin Commission and others and then Generally, the main thing that we want to do is to scale up the approach, but we're also building a big health and gorilla conservation center, which is going to house all our projects, the disease diagnostics and the community education. And we hope it's a place also where tourists can come and visit and learn about what we're doing, and students can come and study. Um, we're also hosting university students mm -hmm. um, from other countries and in Uganda, and because they come there to study about the work we're doing, whether it's public health, angle, veterinarians, medical students, conservation students, community development, it's a good place to get an idea of how these things work yeah, exactly. and it helps them either whether they're undergraduate or master students or even PhD students. So we definitely want to strengthen that because we feel that we need to strengthen up, we need to partner with research institutions and higher learning institutions to be able to study in more detail the different things we're doing to make sure that we're having the impact that we want to we want to have in the end so we need to bring in an element of research actually our donors are asking us more about how is this relating to that and so we need to really strengthen that side of things mm -hmm. and we're very happy to partner with university institutions yes yeah. right. <laughs> so then what would be your message for for students who want get involved in conservation? I think my message for students who want to get involved in conservation is to focus on when they get when they get into an area mm -hmm. they should they should look at what is needed by the community mm -hmm. and then find a way of addressing that rather than coming in and saying I think this is what the community needs they need to be very willing to listen to what the community has to say and their stakeholders in the area so that they're able to do something which is relevant. Um, so there's an element of having a lot of humility to listen to what people want and getting them to also understand that you're trying to help them. And when you're introducing something, even if it's your research project or a program or project in the area, you have to be make sure that people understand it and buy into it and engage them as much as possible. We've had, we had a student, a very good student, who came to do research with us and she was looking at whether tourists were willing to wear masks during a gorilla visit. Mm -hmm. um, and she's called Alison Haynes. And what she found 
is that she was really, really good at, because she knew that at the end of the day, Uganda Wildlife Authority has to buy into this research so that they can implement the recommendations. And so from the beginning, she engaged herself with them. We gave her the platform, we introduced her to all the stakeholders, and she really made it a point to update Uganda Wildlife Authority on her research very regularly, almost every day, and got their input on how to improve on it, how to approach the tourists and everything, so that by the end of it, they all understood what she was doing, and so they're more likely to implement those recommendations. And I really encouraged her to do that. With our next speaker, we will stay in Africa, but move from Uganda to Tanzania. So here is Dina's interview with Dan Brockington, a professor of conservation and development at the School of Environment, Education and Development at the University of Manchester. How did it all start? Well, I began my work as a um, PhD student um, back in 1994 um, in Tanzania when I was part of a project funded by what was then the Overseas Development Agency, ODA, and is now morphed into Department for International Development, DFID. And we were trying to understand how conservation policies had affected um, people who lived, had lived inside a game reserve and were now, after eviction, living outside it. And there were two of us in the team. There was a Tanzanian woman um, called Hilda Kiwasila who was working with agricultural communities, and I was working with the pastoral communities. And to our surprise, we were able to find a, a huge amount of information about the history of this game reserve. A number of archival records became available, which hadn't been before. Um, I undertook quite a, an arduous livelihood survey, which lasted the best part of two years. Um, and we were able to combine that with natural science research taking place within the game reserve. Um, and also to, to match that, to then match those findings to some of the publicity that was being uh, released about the game reserve as, as it tried to, to, to acquire an international profile. Um, and we found that a lot of the, the, the facts and, and ideas that, that were coming out of our work simply had no place in the publicity, in the profile. And part of the reason for that was that some of the ideas being produced were in the publicity were, were, were not true and others were, were misleading. Um, and that caused it no problem. And uh, so the, the first part of my work was, was, was trying to understand where the power of those, that those ideas came from, why it was that it was so, it was so difficult to challenge them, what, a, what appealed in those ideas to diff um, two different audiences and what helped to produce those ideas of a particular vision for Africa that could, we had shown, have such hard um, consequences locally. And so from that it evolved a, a, a dual interest in the, the nature of livelihood change in rural situations, how it is that people cope with adverse circumstances, how they organise their resource management, how they manage, how they how natural resources are governed in context where local people are, are, are predominantly in charge and then in other contexts where the state is in charge where the ideas and philosophies and power to govern things by states comes from that. and then that, the latter idea led into questions about how visions of, of wild Africa are produced through film and the role of celebrity in endorsing those in environmental causes um, and to a more comparative exploration of, of what made conservation powerful, how it, how it could, in fact, rely, ally and rely upon various forms of capitalism. 
um, producing products for sale, um, creating new markets in ecotourism, um, which again tied in with the whole commercialization of celebrity. So you've basically summarized almost um, what you're currently also working on. Not quite. That was up, that was up to about 2005. Okay. Um, so would you like to you know elaborate sure. on what current projects you're working on and what you would like to do, which you do not have, you don't have yeah. currently the resources or the chance or the opportunity Certainly, to do. Yeah. I've just finished a book about celebrity advocacy and international development and that was a result of a two-year fellowship based on work mainly in the UK which was trying to understand how celebrity advocacy had evolved and what shaped it and how it worked or did not work. The main conclusions from that were that the belief in celebrity is much greater than the actual reach of celebrity. Um, this makes it a difficult tool to use with working with publics. It's not as powerful as you might expect, but a very effective tool when working with elites because they subscribe to that belief very thoroughly. I was very happy to do that work. It kind of tied up that interest, and I'm very happy now to move on from it. I've been fortunate to spend a whole year in Tanzania on, on a sabbatical with my family, and I work, was working on... Um, new questions of rural livelihood change and a project which looked at um, the work of microfinance run by the NGO BRAC. And now I'm focusing on that livelihood change. So I've got a project with a man called Phil Woodhouse, um, again funded by DFID and uh, the UK Research Councils, which is looking at agriculture in East Africa and the role of irrigated agriculture in particular in livelihoods. And my own project, all funded by the same donor, um, is resurveying households that were first visited in the early to mid-1990s and trying to explore what types of livelihood change and change in prosperity there has been over the last 20 years. Because it's a contested field. One group of people suggests that Tanzania, which is where the work is being done, it has become a lot richer and the whole country is richer as a result. And another group of people are saying that if you look at what happens to poverty, there's no real change. Um, we're using a slightly different measure of poverty, not using income-based measures, we're using asset-based measures. Our pilot study showed there's been dramatic improvement, but it's just a pilot study. So now we have to do expand across um, other areas. And, and I hope to use this to engage in policies which could have a transformative effect on the landscape and economy of, of large parts of the country where they have brought in what they call growth corridors, which will result in again, um, transformations to agriculture and, and, and livelihoods, but which are predicated on certain assumptions as to how farmers behave. And I'm not sure the historical data that we're collecting as to how farmers have changed will back up the ideas about how farmers will change, all of which has tremendous implications for conservation because it determines the nature of land use um, around protected areas and around areas which are, which are still quite wild. Uh, actually, my the other question what mm. I had thought about was about your book, mm -hmm. um, the celebrity and advocacy and international development. Mm. So I, I thought I'd ask you to elaborate on it, which you have already. Right. And uh, so I was watching this uh, YouTube video with your interview on George, mm. with George Galloway. Yes. And uh, you mentioned something about racial politics there. Yes. And how it has an impact on uh, the conservation policies yeah. in Africa. Yeah. yeah. How it, it has. Mm. So, would you like to sure. talk about that? And yes, that, that is was it really a concern, or and if it is, then why? This this was back in two thousand and nine, and it was um, 
it was really, I, I, I felt I had answered to my own satisfaction the, the, the question which had got me this, into this in the first place, which was um, why there is a particular breed of celebrity conservationist which is, characterizes East African, Southern African landscapes, um, which you don't find in other parts of the world. As I said, you, you don't find them, these people in India um, or, yes. or Southeast Asia. Um, there, there's not the political, commercial space for them. And the, these, these people are, are characterized by largely by their whiteness, um, in ways which cannot be explained by the fact that you have white South Africans and white Kenyans in play. That, that you, you certainly do have those people who, who are representing wild nature in Africa, but there's too much whiteness. It's not in representative of the continent. And what I, my, my, my feeling here is that this, this is produced partly by uh, a popular demand in, in the UK and the US to have white figures savouring Africa, that we like to see people in this role. It makes for, for good television, it makes for, 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 for um, safe, easy cam um, NGO campaigns where you have people negotiating the interface between this incredibly complex, mysterious, unknown continent with these difficult politics, um, which you can't see through. It's incredibly murky, but you have these saviour figures who are able to do that for you. And does it also not provide the opportunity for the locals to have that same representation as the whites? Well, if it did, then you'd, then you'd have a different complexion to the representatives. And um, you work a lot on neoliberal policies mm. and how they've suddenly come into this mainstream of social sciences. So um, would you, um, I would like if you could elaborate on it. I mean, what, what right. do you think are the pitfalls or the advantages of using this? I, I came into the thinking about neoliberal environmentalism through the work of a man called Noel Castry, who's a very brilliant geographer at the University of Manchester. And one, one of the aspects of his brilliance is, is his ability to summarise succinctly and very effectively vast areas of scholarship. Um, and he was summarising work on environmental environmental policies which were characterised by their neoliberal philosophies and practices. And I realised that in fact a lot of the conservation policies um, that he was talking about also shared these neoliberal characteristics. Um, and a part of what I then tried to do with, uh, with Jim Igo um, in an article that came out in Conservation Society called Neoliberal Conservation, a Brief Introduction. But part of what we tried to do there was to communicate our work to a broader group of social scientists um, who didn't often get conservation. They thought conservation was a kind of, a, a kind of good thing that opposed capitalism. And it wasn't, um, wasn't this more complex political arena. And we, could, we were able to say, no, all the processes that you're observing, the commodification, the commercialization, the rolling back of the state in some ways, the rolling out of the state in others, the reliance on, 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 on NGOs, all these things are, are visible in conservation practice, and they're part of conservation practice. And on the other hand, it was a useful, more than just some sort of academic PR exercise, this was actually a very important way of understanding how conservation is changing. Um, because we, for many years, you can say that you could see that conservation, part of conservation's self-identity was to oppose development, was to say that we, we, we don't want particular changes to come in, that if you build here or develop here, or, or create military installations or power stations or dams or roads, you are going to be ruining nature. And conservation was about opposing what 
capitalism and states were trying to do. And we said, no, actually a lot of what happens in conservation is an alliance with different forms of capitalism. And some of my colleagues would say, right, and what we need to do now is stop the alliance. I would take a slightly different view. I'd say, we need to recognize this, and we need to think, okay, so how is this alliance working? For whom? Can we change the terms? Um, do we treat all allies as equal? Do we want to work with some groups, not others? Um, but let's recognize that conservation is not about opposing capitalism anymore. In fact, capitalism and conservation are working together to change the world. So, drawing back from all your research, would you like to share some interesting field stories which um, which are not really uh, available to the research community by scientific publications? The story which, which um, my, my children like laughing at me about is um, the time when I was doing my PhD in a, um, around the Mkomazi Game Reserve. And I was staying in, I had to move around a lot in that job, a lot. And uh, one of the places I stayed was this um, large building, part of an engineering project. And when I woke up one morning, there was a bat so falling through the ceiling that got caught in the mosquito net, and got caught in the bed and hadn't got out. And I thought, oh, the poor thing. And I released the bat back into the roof. And the next day, it had fallen into the net again, the next morning. And I thought, oh, you poor released the bat back and left the place and was then went on to cycle, I was cycling around different Maasai, Paracuyu bomas, the pastoral bomas, the counting cattle and measuring milk heels and things. And I had this cut on my ankle that wasn't healing. Um, and I thought, that's strange. And then I remembered I'd seen on TV that vampire bats, they okay. like to, they land near their prey, they crawl up to them, they bite them on the ankle. Um, they, their saliva um, presents, pre prevents the blood from congealing and so it then comes back to feed in the same place the next day and, okay. and I thought I wonder if I've been bitten by a vampire bat <laughs> now this is before email and, and things and so I, I thought that's a fascinating story so I wrote home and said I think I've been bitten by a vampire bat this is what happened and I wasn't staying near a post office so I carried the letter around in my bag for a couple of weeks and eventually got out of the field and found a post office and posted the letter and it took two three weeks to get there and my parents opened it and an hour later they sent a telegram saying get rabies and vaccination immediately <laughs> go now and this telegram went to my post box which is in a different city entirely and another couple of weeks later I, <laughs> I came back and picked up this telegram um, we didn't have mobile phones or anything like that and I wasn't sure what to do because you have about six weeks from being bitten on the foot by a rabid animal to coming up with rabies and I was pretty close by that stage to actually being infectious. And um, my father's a, a doctor and he rang up various clinics in Dar es Salaam at great expense and eventually found one which said, um, which had rabies vaccines. and. Um, he said, there's a young man coming to see you. Um, you will give, you would administer, in his doctor's voice, you would, you would you know, administer the following treatments to him, make sure you do that and let me know. And I, after a couple of days, worked out where the clinic was and turned up, and I was just a little bit too relaxed about this. And the doctor was thinking, are you sure you're doing this? And I, it's worth doing this. And I, I didn't think it was, but I didn't want to 
disobey with my parents over this particular issue. So I just said, look, you may be right, just let my dad know that you can't do it. <laughs> so anyway, I got the vaccines. Um, and I don't think it... You were a bit of Well, I think I was. I just don't think it was rabid. Okay. Did anyway. you like to talk about your family? Oh, yes. So, so in the last sabbatical, I, 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 my, my, my wife is Tanzanian. Okay. Um, and we have uh, two children, Rosie and Emily, 9 and 11. Um, and I had a, we had a sabbatical year in, in, in Tanzania, 2012-2013, which is the best thing, I think, mm-hmm. which has ever happened to us. I mean, we, we were living in my wife's village next door to my parents in law. Um, and my children were going to the local school. Drasla Sita Drasla Ne, class five, class six. Um, and, sorry, class four, class six. Okay. And um, they, they learned to speak Swahili, they could start playing with their cousins. Um, I began making inroads into my wife's language, which is a Cushitic language and incredibly difficult. Um, and it was just a chance to get back to basics. Um, it was high up, no mosquitoes, no rabid vampire bats. It was a wonderful place to be. As you understood, Dan Brockington was a plenary speaker of the conference. And actually, his talk was very nice. So I encourage you to check out his webpage and to read his books. You will find the link through our website. And now, because SCCS is a student conference, we are going to listen to two students who are going to tell us a bit more about their work and why they have been coming to SCCS Bangalore 2014. I have with me Naven Hon, who is from Cambodia and who has worked extensively with Gibbons. He is presenting a poster in SACS this year. I would like to know, Naven, how did you come into the field of conservation? And uh, please also uh, let us know about your work. Okay. Yeah, first of all, why I'm really interested in conservation. I live in a remote area where the forest or natural resources have been exploited and the people just look at but they don't do it. So I'm passionate in doing that course. But in order to do that, I have to get higher education. Currently, I study Master of Science in Ecology and Biodiversity and I'm really interested in given, in uh, food, food given, conservation and given. Yeah. Okay, is this your first time to SSS? Yeah, actually, it's my second time. The first time I, I presented Asian smoke water on food, food represses of Asian smoke water, and this this time I'm present on uh, gibbons, a variation of yellowish gibbon. It is a new species described in 2010. And SPS not just only a conference; it's just like a building network of young conservationists in around the world. For example, I'm really interested in gibbon, but just only one species, and other other people know more than that. So I, I, I'm not just attending, I'm not just sharing my knowledge, but I gain other knowledge from other people as well. And we ask conservation, not just only one country, but around the globe. It is our, it's my objective. So Naven, how do you like this year's SSLs? This year I met a lot of primatologists. It is one, one, of, the, one of the reasons that I really come here, and I learn a lot from other people as well. And Especially, I building network from different countries, like from India, from uh, Singapore, and from other countries like Sri Lanka, who are interested in private and other field aspects in terms of conservation. Yeah. After Naven, Pankash interviewed Amila Sumanapala from Sri Lanka, who was presenting a poster on dragonflies. 
Actually, my poster is based on a study I have carried out in uh, one of the urban wetlands in Sri Lanka. So I wanted to study the diversity and the uh, use of different habitat types of different Odonara species. And also, uh, I am currently still doing the project for a uh, period of one year, uh, trying to study their phenology, uh, changes in their population within a year, and to see any seasonal differences are uh, present in the area. So Amila, we would like to know more about how did you come into the conservation field? Uh, actually, I got into the conservation field uh, through, uh, I had a, I always had a feeling towards the animals and I was, uh, I liked them a lot and then after some time during my school years, I got to know that there are a uh, lot of work to be done in the field of biology, in, especially in the field biology. So I wanted to do something and become Actually, first I wanted to become a taxonomist. Then I uh, get into the field of uh, field biology and then learn about conservation issues in Sri Lanka. And then uh, with time, I moved towards conservation science and currently I am uh, studying environmental conservation and ma management and hoping to become a conservationist one day and to do something about the uh, conservational issues in Sri Lanka and the region. So Amila, is this your first time in SSCS Bangalore? Yes, uh, this is my first time. So how is the experience? It's great, actually. I got to know about the conference from one of my friends who attended last year. So she said that uh, this is a great opportunity, opportunity to meet people in the region and uh, share their experiences and learn new things. So I wanted to try that. I wanted to meet people in the region and uh, learn from their experiences. And here I got to know many people from India and surrounding countries and also even from Madagascar. So it's quite it's really beautiful. I mean, uh, learning, meeting people and learning from their experiences is quite great. And also I got to learn from, the, uh, so I attended several workshops and learned new things from that. That's quite wonderful. So Amila, one last question. So people talk about large mammal conservation. They talk about species which are flagship in nature and you know, you can do a lot with a landscape and all. So you are studying dragonflies which are insects. So how do you think studying insects can help in conservation? Well, we should understand that the large mammals are not the only component in the nature. It's, uh, it's a web of life. I mean, there are many small forms of life that are present in the nature and also contributing to the balance of the ecology, ecosystem. So just like a large mammal, every single creature is important for the ecosystem. Definitely it's uh, critical and it's uh, necessary to study all these animals and to learn from their uh, other animals and uh, get that involved in the conservation field. Not only the large species matters when the conservation is uh, taken into account. So we have to study about the small animals also. And in uh, another thing is in uh, countries like, uh, tropical countries like Sri Lanka and India, there's a huge diversity in uh, small life forms like dragonflies, butterflies and other, in other insects. It's uh, really diverse and there's a huge en endemic uh, percentage in the countries. So we have to study that and we have to learn from them and use that in knowledge to the conservation of all the biota. That's what I'm intended to do uh, by studying dragonflies and involve that knowledge into uh, biodiversity conservation in the uh, area. I agree with Amila. And I think that we often forget how much the invisible or the small species can shape the visible or the large species. In our next podcast, you are going to hear about drones and communication in conservation science, and also about other crazy things that happened at SCCS Bangalore 2014. So stay tuned!
You have been listening to the Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to the study and conservation of primates around the world. Brought to you by the Centre for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology at the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University. Visit us online at www.cicasp.pri.kyoto-u.ac.jp forward slash news forward slash podcasts and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash the primate cast and on Twitter at the primate cast.